All right, 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has ever seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, this text, as I read it this week, has me asking one question over and over. Do we really believe it's possible for for us to change. Do you really believe change is possible in your life? I, I think, you know, I'm sometimes like this. For some of us, if we're really honest, the answer is that eh, not really. <laughs> not really. Uh, maybe you have grown so accustomed to issues and struggles in your life that you've just kind of given up functionally any hope for real change, for real transformation, for real victory. I think that's fairly common for people who follow Jesus. Maybe you're in a place where you basically say to yourself, I'm an old dog, right, that can't learn new tricks. Um, I'm resigning myself to this struggle, to this feeling, to this doubt, to this guilt, to this dark pattern. You remember that old Bruce Hornsby song? Um, that's just the way it is. Tupac did it later, by the way. He sampled Bruce Hornsby. Some of you might know it as Tupac song. Did he just mention Tupac? Yes, I just mentioned Tupac in a sermon. That's the way it is. Some things will never change. You know, we, we, we talk all the time. <laughs> Sorry. We talk all the time here about, about how the gospel can change us. It's our main core value. It's the, the foundation that this church is being built on. The gospel changes everything. Changes literally in our core value statement. And I think that God gave us this part of 1 John to remind us that change is in fact possible. I know that we can become cynical and we can doubt that that is really true. It might sound to you this morning like hollow, pie-in-the-sky, church talk or pastor talk. And so we need to hear the voice of Jesus speak to us today through his word. And that's what these verses in 1 John teach us, that change is not only possible for you, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. Let's remind ourselves of where we are. If you're new today, let me catch you up. We've been through 1 John, and uh, John has just written in the first three verses of chapter 3 about the fatherly love of God. See what kind of love the Father has for us, he wrote, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. He was, he was momentarily knocked off his rocker, you know, by God's love for him. 
And we saw last week that that's in some ways what it means to be a Christian. You're amazed, amazed that God can love you. God loves me. Are you serious? If that's the the posture of your heart, then you're growing in grace. That's what John told us last week. Now, John continues by telling us that if God loves you so much that he gives you new birth to become a part of his family as his son or as his daughter, if that's true and that is true, then real, pronounced, ongoing change will happen in your life. Listen to C.S. Lewis. This is a kind of a long quote, but you know what? I don't try to do long quotes often, but with C.S. Lewis, I make an exception. Listen, this is C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. In awful and surprising truth, we are the objects of his love. You asked for a loving God, you have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked, the Lord of terrible aspect is present. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. Not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate. Not the cares of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests. But the consuming fire himself. The love that made the worlds. Persistent as the artist's love for his work and despotic as a man's love for a dog, provident and venerable as a father's love for a child, jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. It is certainly a burden of glory, not only beyond our deserts, but also, except in rare moments of grace, beyond our desiring. What Lewis is saying there is, you really want a God who loves you? I'm not sure you do, because that's exactly what you get. And because the real God really loves you, he is going to go to work bringing change. John gives us three ways, maybe three perspectives in these verses on the inevitability of change if we have been born into God's family. And with each of these, he also reminds us of the reality of what God has done in the gospel of what God has done for us in the gospel that will produce transformation. So let's listen to his word today. I want to summarize it like this. Here's a main idea statement for you. Being born into God's family means real change will happen. Being born into God's family means real change will happen. Let's look at three ways John tells us. First, if you're born into God's family, verses 4, 5, and 6, you won't abide in sin. Look at the text with me. There in verse 3, John has written that everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, connecting to Jesus in faith begins in all of us a process of what John calls purification, a process of change. Look at verse 5. He explains further. You know that Jesus appeared to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. What a great verse that tells us why Jesus Christ come came. Why did Jesus Christ come? To take away sin. In John's gospel, fourth book of the New Testament, John records what happened when John the Baptist saw Jesus. When John the Baptist, who had been ministering in preparation for Jesus' arrival, saw Jesus, he said, behold, the, does anybody remember? The Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sins of the world. John there is invoking an ancient Old Testament custom. And there's a word for this custom. It's called expiation. Expiation. 
What that means is that the Jewish people would take a pure spotless lamb, and they did all kinds of things with lambs in the sacrificial system, but in this instance, the priest would place his hand on the lamb and symbolically, in doing so, transfer his sin and the sin of the people onto the lamb, and they would send the lamb off into the wilderness. The lamb would expiate or take away from the people their sin. Now, John is saying that is why Jesus of Nazareth came. But Jesus didn't come, guys, just to symbolically take it away. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He really takes it away as far as the east is from the west in his atoning death for his people. And here's what John's saying. If Jesus has done that for you, what does it mean? Look at verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So here's the logic. God the Father has made you his child through Jesus. God has, in Jesus, removed from you. Isn't that good news? He's removed from you all the stain and all the guilt of all your sin. And if that has really happened, if that's really happened, we will not, he says, abide in sin. Now, remember, John didn't write this letter in a vacuum. No letter in the New Testament was written in a vacuum. They all had a context. And here he's addressing false teaching that was dividing and that was damaging these young churches. And among other things, we've seen, haven't we, that these false teachers said that they could have fellowship with God on the one hand and still walk in darkness on the other, chapter 1, verse 6. So John still has those false teachers in mind here when he says, living in sin... And living in Christ are mutually contradictory. Living in sin and living in Christ are mutually contradictory. Now, the translation we use here to read from, it's not because we think it's the only good translation, but in this case, we use the ESV. And in verse 6, the translators translate the original language as no one who keeps on sinning. And I think that's a really important and a really good translation. Another word we'll talk more about it in a moment, that's used six times in just these verses is the word practice. The reason that's important is because this translation helps us to see that John, listen, listen, guys, John is not saying here that true Christians are sinless Christians. He's not saying that. Why not, Luke? Well, because just a couple of chapters earlier, he said in verse 9 of chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth isn't in us. And I know John's old, right? But he's not so old that he forgot what he wrote like 10 minutes before, okay? He's not that old yet. Also, in chapter 2, verse 1, he said, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This letter is written to Christians. He's assuming there the ongoing presence of sin that Christians must fight against. So John does not mean, he does not mean that we will perfectly overcome sin in this life. We will not. But he does mean something. Here's what he means. He means that if we are born into God's family, we will stop, and here's the key word, abiding. We will stop abiding in sin. We will stop practicing sin. Habitual, ongoing sin will diminish. John is thinking here about the bent of our hearts. If we are born into God's family, the bent of our heart is arched towards righteousness. 
And it's a long arch over a long period of time, but it's arched towards life with God. It's arched towards righteousness and not towards sin. So what is the Holy Spirit doing in these verses? He's wanting you to ask yourself, is this happening in my life? Is this happening in my life? Are you seeing less and less a taste for sinful rebellion against God your Father, less and less a desire to hurt God's very hearts. John is asking here for a healthy self-examination, not a morbid, guilt-laden introspection, but a healthy examination. He's seeing, he's saying, believing in the gospel, listen, it can't not change us. It can't not change us. God is going to make us more and more like his sinless son, Jesus. How? Well, we'll look at that in future weeks, but for now, let me say again, the key word is in verse 6, by abiding. No one who abides in him, who leans into, who falls into Jesus continually makes a practice of, keeps on sinning. How can we change? How can we grow out of sinfulness? God does this primarily not through our willpower. That's a mistake we often make. He doesn't do it primarily through our willpower. He does it primarily through our abiding. He does it by assuring and then reassuring us of his gracious presence, his abiding with us so that we can abide with him. And as we live in him, we get his life which inevitably produces righteousness, not rebellion. What would it look like for you to wake up tomorrow aware in faith that God has preceded you into that day and is drawing you into an encounter of his divine love for you, of his very presence, of his very heart for you? Invite, my friends, invite the Spirit of God, to so capture your heart that you're willing to follow. If you're born into God's family, you will not make a practice of sin. John tells us more. Second, if you're born into God's family, verse 7, verse 8, you will practice righteousness. So not only will we lose our taste for sin progressively over time, not only will we see progress from rebellion against our loving Father to abiding in our loving Father, But we'll begin to practice righteousness as he is righteous. Look at verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. The word righteousness there, very common word in the Bible, but depending on the context can mean slightly different things. Here what it means is really just conformity to God's own character. Conformity to God's own standards for human flourishing, for human wholeness, which are laid out in God's law and God's word, things like the Ten Commandments, for example. And look at the word, by the way, used again and again. I just mentioned it a moment ago. This is instructive for our understanding of this text. The word is practice. Practice. When you hear the word practice, what do you think of? I think of sports. Shocker, right? Some of you might think of playing a musical instrument. Practice invokes the idea of habit. Habit. You know, when I, uh, a number of years ago, felt like I needed a new hobby, I, I began to learn how to play the piano. Now, I stopped 
Kevin won't let me play on Sundays. So I gave up. Um, I stopped playing piano. I started playing piano for a while. And, and, you know, I would play every day. And uh, it was ongoing, regular, habitual practice. And, And when I was regularly practicing the piano, you know, the dexterity of my fingers would very, very, very slowly long bent, you know, would very, very slowly improve. And, and my play was a little bit better each day. And interestingly enough, as I got better, my enjoyment also increased. It's, it's very similar in a sport, a skill sport, you know, like basketball. Basketball is, is similar to learning an instrument. You have to practice free throws, unlike, you know, Ben Simmons or Shaquille O'Neal or a lot of current NBA or past NBA players. And as you, as you practice shooting, as you practice your jumper, as you practice free throws repeatedly with the same motion again and again, it hones your muscle memory and it trains your hands and eyes to improve and your coordination gets better. And as your form is appropriate and as your technique improves, you become a better shooter. But if you stop practicing... Like when I stopped practicing piano, you lose the ability to play and you lose the enjoyment of playing. John's saying, he's saying that those who have been born into God's family, those who've experienced regeneration, the new birth, will show themselves to be God's children by working at righteousness, by practicing righteousness. That's not how you become a child of God, but it's evidence that you are a child of God. And again, the the idea is progressive, habitual, ongoing lifestyle changes. Unlike what the false teachers that had hurt these churches were teaching, there is a fundamental connection, my friends, between knowing God and practicing righteousness. There's a fundamental connection between knowing God and practicing righteousness. Very importantly, notice, again, just like he did with the first point, John grounds, he grounds this charge to change, to practice righteousness in the reality of the gospel. Did you catch that? As we learn to read the Bible well, I want you to learn to see that John's commands and any New Testament writer's commands are always grounded in the reality of the gospel. We see it here, verse 8. The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Because Jesus has come, because he has destroyed the works of the devil, you have the power through the ministry of his outpoured Holy Spirit to, in fact, over time, progressively put sin to death and to practice righteousness. John says the devil has been a sinner from the beginning. He's a liar, and all of his children are liars. All of his children practice sin. But Jesus has come, and he's triumphed over the devil. He has cast the devil off of his throne and Jesus has been raised from death and he shut up the devil's mouth like the lion of the tribe of Judah that Jesus is. And even though now the defeated devil still prowls around this world waiting to devour and looking for people to devour, one day Jesus is going to return with eyes like flames of fire and with a sword protruding from his mouth along with the host of the armies of heaven and with the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords written across his robe and he will cast him 
into eternal darkness in righteous judgment before he brings in his glorious kingdom, uniting all things in heaven and on earth, reconciling to himself his loved creation. That's what's going to happen. The war is already over. We're just doing mop-up duty now. Jesus has won. John's saying, to use Morpheus's old quote from the 90s movie, The Matrix, this is the really real. This is the really real. This is the truth. This is what Christ has done. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, very similarly, that in Christ, we're already raised up with him. We've already experienced resurrection. We've already been seated with him in the heavenlies. Peter writes that we've already been made partakers of the divine nature. Right now, if you've connected to Jesus, you enjoy the power and the privilege and the purity of life with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. If that, John's saying, if that is the really real, we can practice righteousness. You don't practice righteousness to get into the family. You get into the family even though you practiced sin. That's why the gospel is not just news, it's good news. You practice righteousness because you see more and more the depth of God's love for you in Christ and you want to please your dad. So what does that look like? What does it look like to practice righteousness? Another 40-year-old movie reference. I'm really on fire today. Remember, remember Hoosiers? Remember the movie Hoosiers? If you don't, shame on you. Uh, go watch Hoosiers. Um, Gene Hackman plays uh, Norman Dale. Uh, He's this experienced college basketball coach who got fired from his college job and goes to this tiny little Indiana town to take the high school head coach job. And he shows up for the first practice, and the players are in there with the assistant coaches practicing, and they're just jacking up jumpers, you know, right and left, nothing but shooting drills, nothing but three-point, like today's NBA, basically, nothing but three-pointers. And and Norman Dale walks in and uh, sort of takes control of the whole operation and, and says, we're going to start practice. And the players, you know, all have their basketballs and they're ready to go. And he says, everybody put your ball down. And they're like, what? And, and they run multiple practices without even using a basketball because they're working first on defense. Defense. I think that's in some ways how the scriptures instruct us to begin practicing righteousness. Start with defense. Learn how to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. That's how Paul puts it later in Ephesians in chapter 6. He says, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, a defensive thing, that you may, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, right? The devil always lies to us. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. And the main lie the devil tells us in countless myriad ways is that God does not want us to be happy and whole. That God is against us. And that if we join him, the devil, we'll get all that we want. Uh, The rings of power. So good. Spoiler coming, okay? Spoiler. Uh, At the end, if you haven't seen the end, earmuffs. Okay, um, when Sauron is revealed, I'm not going to tell you, when Sauron's revealed, you know, Sauron is the deceiver, the bad guy in the rings of power. He appears to Galadriel. Some of you are totally lost now, but I'm going. I got to go. He appears to Galadriel, and, and what he does is he tempts her 
to join him. He invites her into power and into happiness with him. And she says, you want to destroy all of Middle Earth? And he says, no, I don't want to destroy Middle Earth. I want to heal Middle Earth. And she says, you want to rule, not to heal. To which Soren replies, I see no difference between the two. He's a tempter. Thankfully, Galadriel is able to stand against him. That's what the devil does. His primary target is our trust in God and our trust in God's word. If the devil can get us to doubt that practicing righteousness is for our ultimate joy, if he can get us to doubt that obedience to God and his law is for our happiness, he has us. So we learn to practice righteousness first by believing and trusting and rehearsing to ourselves that God is for us, that God wants what is good for us, that God is true and righteous and faithful, and that extinguishes the darts of the enemy. If we're really born into God's family, we will not abide in sin. If we're really born into God's family, we will practice righteousness. Last, if you're born into God's family, verse 9, you will act like your true father. That's the last thing John says. He's been writing that real change is possible. It's possible. It's inevitable because you've been born again into God's family. Now he says, hey, don't let anyone deceive you. Look in verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. John is saying that those who are really born into God's family through the Spirit, giving new life, will act like their real dad. Really, it's it's actually quite a scandalous way John puts it here. You know, old people, old people can get away with saying anything, right? That's sorry, but you old people can get away with saying saying a lot. And, you know, John's 90 and and he puts it pretty scandalously. He says there, God's, I got to do it, guys. God's seed abides in him. The, the original word there is the word sperma. And, and I'll let you draw your own conclusions. But it's very obvious what John's saying. Literally, here's what he's saying. We have been impregnated with the person of God. That's what he says. We've been impregnated with the spirit of God dwelling inside of us. We're in his family now. We are his children now. That's the reality of the gospel. Again, Jesus came to give us new birth. I can't help but think of that wonderful story in John's gospel, chapter 3, where Nicodemus, chief Pharisee, Ph.D. in Old Testament, comes at night to inquire of Jesus. And uh, he says, hey, Jesus, I've been impressed with your teaching. I've been impressed with some of your miracles. It's clear that you're from God. And and Jesus just isn't having it at all and gives a complete non sequitur. And he just says to Nicodemus, hey, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, what? What? How can I go into my mom's room? Jesus is like, listen, Nicodemus, aren't you a teacher of Israel? You don't get how drastic your problem is, which is why you don't get how drastic the solution must be. You need an entirely new birth. This time it will not be of the flesh, but of the spirit. The point's the same here. If something that radical, if something that drastic has really happened to us in the gospel, it will change us. 
In this case, it means we will look more and more like our father. I've been told my whole life that I look like my dad. Some of you have met him. He's been around lately. And now my sons, especially Nate, my oldest, gets told that he looks like me. You're welcome, Nate. And uh, he's now often sometimes told that he has the same sense of humor that I have, another great gift. So maybe one day you'll not laugh at all his funny jokes in sermons. Um, It's genetics and it's upbringing, right? It's the same with our children, nature and nurture that causes this resemblance. That's the idea here. We've been imprinted. Indeed, we've been implanted with God's nature, with his very self, with his spirit. And that nature will show itself in our lives as we grow up into Christ. How? Mainly through the way of love which we're going to talk about next week. Is real change possible? Not only is it possible, dear ones, it is inevitable. That is the power of the gospel. The gospel is not just that God saves you out of hell, although it is that. The gospel is that God is saving you in Christ by his spirit, and turning you into something much more beautiful than you ever imagined you would be. The Father's love is so deep and so wide and so vast that not only does he bring us into his family through gracious adoption in Jesus, he also changes us into those who will be pure, as he is pure. It's good news. Let's pray.